those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou, and welcome back. Today, Giuseppe Galina, who himself immigrated to New Zealand from Italy in the early 1990s, looks back at the intrepid travels to the Pacific of some of his compatriots, including Venetian Antonio Ponto, who sailed on the Endeavour's first voyage. He takes in the broader history of Italian migration and looks at why the country looked so far past its own borders when it came to settlement abroad. Though immigration to New Zealand from Italy never developed into substantial numbers, Giuseppe argues that those who did settle have made an impact, for example in diversification of our palate. He also looks at potential reasons behind an apparent upward trend in numbers since the turn of the century. Nevertheless, if you thought your Friday night pizza was still lacking something, our speaker asks us to ponder what a large-scale Italian invasion might have meant for Aotearoa. Enjoy the journey. Haramai titahi ahoa. Thank you for coming. And haramai. Now, I study historians, so I study the data published by those historians who have studied the documentations of facts. And that's all I study. I don't study anything else. So I don't study something said from A to B to C to D. I go straight to the original point. I'd like to begin my speech with a little story. It's the first time when I heard of New Zealand. I was a little boy, a little boy, before school years. So 1968, 1969. And my granny told me the story because she was coming from the city of Faenza in northern Italy where the New Zealand division was stationed during the last part of the war. And she told me about the soldiers with fur white skin who were the British and the ones whose skin color was a deep pitch black and they were the Africans and the ones with the turbans, the Indians. And then there were the soldiers who were not black and not white and whose face features were different. She was obviously talking about the Maori soldiers. And 23, 24 years after that speech, I migrated to New Zealand. So, I'd like to tell you about how and why the Italians came to New Zealand. 
and when and the typology of people. So why these connections in between Italy and the Pacific? Because in the middle there is the Atlantic Ocean, which is not a small thing. Probably, probably because the Atlantic Ocean was already taken up by the 1700s. Colonies, the coasts, so there was nothing to take, nothing to discover. And with the enlightenment, which was said it in simple terms, the opening up of the minds of people more than two centuries before during the Renaissance, with the enlightenment, the Italians began to look away from their peninsula. And they went directly to the Pacific. So we are talking about little countries with little money. Nevertheless, they wanted to do something big because there was not yet installed in the minds of the people in power the concept of unity. So they weren't thinking about that much. So they were looking at something else. And in 1850, in Milan, the foreign missions was set up. And they began to fund some trips. Trips to the Pacific. No, something to the Atlantic, but very little. Mainly to the Pacific. And in 18, in between 1853 and 1857, they had the first round the world trip led by Agostino Tortello. It's a big place, the Pacific, not a small one. So they wanted to go there. In 1861, the Kingdom of Italy was set up. The country, most of it was unified, but still it was a country with a lot of foreign debt because of the war of, um, um, of independence, etc. Nevertheless, they financed trips to the, to the Pacific that tells you how strong and deep the interest in this part of the world was. But there were big efforts, big efforts for those people because there wasn't a huge power behind them like England or France or Germany. And that also tells us the problem that was to come with Italian colonization because there was no understanding of Italian, of colonization politics. So what they were doing was beyond their means and in the end it was wrong. They should have probably kept the money and invested it in Italy. But that's what they wanted to do because the concept of unity took time to be accepted widely by the population. From 1882 to 1915, when Italy joined World War I, 
Nine million Italians left the country. Nine millions. One third of the population. One third. And they were mainly people with no money, no job, no perspective of having a decent life, say. So it helped a lot the governments to reduce unemployment. And emigration, since then, emigration has been used almost always, not always, but almost always, by whatever government to reduce unemployment. This is to set up the environment to try and clarify why Italians emigrated and why they were thinking about the Pacific straight without even considering the Atlantic. The first Italian who came here came with Cook on the endeavor in 1769. His name was Antonio Ponto. It was a Venetian sailor. In 1769, the Napoleonic invasions were approaching another 30 years. So the textures of the Italian countries, like they used to be called, so the country that we're making up today, Italy, was beginning to weaken a bit. And this was creating a new situation which not everybody was understanding and accepting. So some people were leaving. The first Italian permanent resident was a guy called Salvatore Cimino um, in the 1840s, so after the Treaty of Waitangi, who was a fisherman, went to Port Nicholson in Wellington, found out the fishing was good, went back to Italy, said it, and came back here. And it is very important because the first main trunk of Italian immigration was about fishermen. Okay, Salvatore Cimino came back and uh, he had an accident, broke his leg, and ended up marrying a woman and living in, in a Maori village. And then the first important things happened. Still, we're still talking about a minute number of people. Eh? Nothing compared to, I'm not saying the British, but uh, Dutch or Germans. So, uh, uh, an incredibly small number of people, but the interest in New Zealand somehow was growing. And um, the first uh, Catholic cardinal of Polynesia was uh, French, Pompalier, who was in Russell. And uh, he needed um, the wine for the Catholic service. And the first wine was produced by the Dalmatians. The Dalmatian, well, from this side of the Adriatic. The problem was the clergymen were Irish, and the Irish don't drink wine, they drink beer. So Pompalier wanted people who drink wine. And so some Franciscan friars were sent here. 
But behind the story of, the, of drinking the wine for the service, there was a big reason, a big reason. There are two books here in the special collection. I read them, but they are in Italian. Where these Franciscan friars describe New Zealand, full of mistakes. It's all a mistake. It's completely wrong. I give you an example. In one of these books, the author put the Southern Alps beginning in the escape. So while I was reading, why this? You know, what the point to be so wrong? Because the point wasn't geographical or historical preciseness. The point was very different. There was a religious reason behind this. Because obviously New Zealand was Protestant. So if you read those books, well, they are in Italian, but you have a sense, a clear sense, that they are, actually in one book is also written very clearly, that they are trying to discredit the country. Not, not because of New Zealand. New Zealand itself was fine. But because being Protestant and trying to um, install Catholicism here, they were saying that the life of people, Pakihas and Maoris alike, was not as good as it could be, because not being Catholic, but being Protestant, they were not Christian enough. And that was leading to, the, to, to these problems. And the other interesting thing is that those books were never allowed to be, to be published in New Zealand. They were only published over there in Italy. And publishing in the 1860s, the 70s, 1880s books about New Zealand in Italy, the interest, you can imagine, wasn't that high. But it was the first attempt of Italian people to have an interest in this country. As a consequence of this a little bit, the first Italian ship to visit Auckland was the Magenta in 1867. And then another very important thing happened. This guy was not Italian. This guy was Julius Virgil, a prime minister. In 1870, he passed, well, parliament passed, the Immigration and Public Works Act. Very simply, this guy understood that the colony didn't have enough people. They needed more people. To get the people here, they had to advertise New Zealand and Europe build ports for the people arriving, and roads and bridges to get them moving up and down the country. And that's what he did. He went to England, negotiated alone, like the Labour government did in 1938. And with the money, he did all this. So we have the first New Zealand immigration representative in Livorno, in southern Tuscany an English guy by the name of Joe Glenn. And this Joe, uh, John, John Glenn, John Glenn. And he describes New Zealand. At the time, Italians were perceived to be good in building roads and building railways. What they wanted, what they wanted here. So the first 230 people arrived 
in Wellington in three groups. Big problem. Big problems. Two big problems. One, they are put to do jobs differently, different from what they had said they were going to do. Two, they are paid less. They stay here a bit of time, get sick and tired, pack up and leave. So there are complaints. Uh, John Glynn is sacked, and they set up, the Italian government set up um, um, a consular office in Melbourne to look after Australia. Australia was more interesting, interesting from the immigration point of view, and New Zealand. So a new group of people come here. 800 families, so many more than 800 people. And they were farmers. But yet again, different jobs, less money than what they had been promised. So some people, some people, not all of them, some people, when before all of them, the 230 packed up and left, some people of these 800 family leave, some other are sent to the house, pass, you know, not, not much to do there in terms of agriculture, to Jackson Bay, which is southwest of the South Island. That's where the New Zealand government was thinking to build the port, because it is geographically the closest point to Australia. But the life conditions there were too tough, so they left. Some people went to the Okura River, which is just north of Auckland, and they settled there for a while. They stay about two and a half years. And then they also left. Problem for the New Zealand government, they want the people to come here and stay. So the New Zealand government takes the um, supported immigration away from Italian-speaking countries, which, mean, which meant Italy, southern Austria, the province of Trento and Trieste, which are nowadays Italy, but back then they were Austria, and southern Switzerland. So when I came here, I had to pay for my own ticket. You didn't have to spend a cent. When I, bought, when I went to the, to the travel agency, I bought a one-way ticket, not a return ticket, a one-way ticket, which was a little cheaper than a return ticket, but not that much. The, the travel agent, she was looking at me with two eyes like that. She couldn't understand why a one-way ticket. Anyway, this problem of being told one thing, and when you come here, being put in a different position, in different shoes, did not apply only to Italians, but it also applied to English. Through the uh, New Zealand company, they went to Wellington to purchase land. They said that the land had already been subdivided when the land had not even been bought from the local Maori iwi. So this problem was generalized. And thinking about that, I thought, well, these were in scams, really. You know, scams that became schemes. And I was wondering, why, why is that? If you want to promote the country and get people here, 
you have to have a good name. You start lying, you get some people, but then people talk, you know, people write. But then I thought, hang on a second, but New Zealand was competing in terms of immigration with European countries like England with, for the factories, Belgium because of the mines, Germany with the factories, and then Canada and then the United States, as you've seen, Brazil, Argentina, Australia. So they had to find a way to start getting some people. So if you see it like that, you can see that it was a bit like twisting the rules, but achieving the point of this guy, which was rising the number of people living here. So, still talking about a very minute number of people, but it's a bit more, you know, from hardly anybody to the first people coming, that they don't stay, they leave, but, but, but then, but then uh, the rumor goes around, so more people know about New Zealand in Italy than before. And they set up in 1885 the, um, the Garibaldi Club. That was Giuseppe Garibaldi, the hero of Italy, uh, which was also a bit of a controversial figure, really. Um, you only, when you read about him, you only read one side of the story, but it was very important anyhow. And some other people begin to come and have some kind of impact in the country. In, 1875, in 1875, an architect by the name of Luigi Boldini came here and he designed buildings in Dunedin. Some were pulled down, but some are still up. And one in Queen Street, which was called Mutual Life Association of Australia, Cook and Son, which is not, I haven't found it here in Queen Street. But he stayed here uh, for 13 years to 1888. Then he must have smartened up because he changed his name into a French name, so the French version of Boldini to probably sounds smarter and moved to Australia. This guy, Carlo Bergamini, was from northern Tuscany where there are caves of marble. So he came over to promote his business, his family business of producing statues. So he developed his business here and did reasonably well because he produced a lot of the uh, statues that you can find in war memorials about the two Boer Wars in South Africa at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. And you can find them in the South Island at Palmerston, Waimate, Omaru, Riverton, and Dunedin. Now, I told you of the first Italian uh, permanent resident, Salvatore Cimino, who went to Port Nicholson to fish and realized that fishing was good and went back to Italy. By the 1890s, immigration from Italy had grown and they knew somehow of the fishing in New Zealand. And they knew specifically about Port Nicholson in Wellington. 
So from this little place, which is south of Naples, around here, some fishermen came up. It's called Massa Lubrense. And from the island of Stromboli, which is north of Sicily in this group of islands in this archipelago. So they come from those two places in the 1890s and they settled in Wellington in the suburb of Island Bay, which is not far from the airport. And if you go there, you see street names in Italian. So, and they do another important thing because they set up the first fish market in the country. So until then, fish was eaten, was used at familiar level, uh, personal level, going fishing. What they do, they go out fishing in groups, fish a lot of fish, and they sell it in a market. So that's the first time it happens in New Zealand. So again, when we talk about the Italian community, we talk about, uh, still today, a, a very small number of people, but people who somehow try to settle and do something for themselves and for the community. Another thing is this guy, Romeo Bregato. And these people, this person, Romeo Bragato promoted drinking wine. It was called in 1895 by the New Zealand government. It was in Victoria, in Australia, and he produced the first scientific study of New Zealand for growing grapes in order to produce wine, titled Prospect of Viticulture in New Zealand. But at the time, 120 years ago, who was drinking wine here? No one. I came in 1993 and nobody was drinking wine. Very few people 26 years ago were drinking wine. So the government wasn't really interested in that. So in 1909, he left and went to Canada. But the wine industry, which is much more developed these days and uh, I can't remember what is the growth, the yearly growth of drinking wine, but it's huge. It's something like 200% or 300% every year. Again, started back then. At the same time, more or less, of the first fish market in Wellington. The real immigration, the bigger immigration is after World War II, and it starts with 55 war brides. 55 Italian women who had married Kiwi soldiers. I met one of them, and I tell you the story she told me, because to me it was mind-blowing in 1993. She met her husband in Italy. They married in Italy. He stayed on there because they were traveling the country. So he came to New Zealand later, she came over here without speaking English by herself, and she met her parents-in-law alone for the first time ever without speaking English. Imagine that. And I was complaining in 1993 how tough immigrating is. 
and we had in the 1960s, so a different typology of person from families to single people to, to work in the hydroelectric projects at Manapuri. A lot of them stayed on and married New Zealand women. To conclude, I'd like to also give some figures to just have a, a better general idea. Uh, from Statistic New Zealand. From 1993, I started in 1993 because that's the year when I came here, to 2016, the census information, because the information about the 2018 census is not available yet. So the, talking about number of Italians who came to New Zealand from Italy, no, not born in Australia and came here, people like me who were born in Italy from Italian parents, grew up there and came over here. So in 1993, 42, I was one of them. In 2000, 28. So really, no interest. But then things changed. In 2005, 91. In 2010, 123. And in 2016, 455. And I bet you that the figures for the 2018 will be higher, will be, will be maybe twice or three times than 455. So what has happened? In 2000, only 28. And in 16 years later, 455. The euro. In 2001, was introduced the euro. And the euro has made life more expensive. It's not the only reason, there are also other reasons, but this, in my view, is the main reason. That's what pushed people to start emigrating again. It's young Italian youth there, people aged between 18 and 30, say, are beginning to emigrate again, or are beginning to look at emigrating again. So the old tool of reducing unemployment with immigration started in 1882 is beginning to come up again. I, I finish my speech with a rhetorical question, because the question is for you, in case you want to, respond, to reply to it whenever you like. If the Italian community in New Zealand had been a big community and had had an impact on New Zealand decision making and politics, like the United States, with uh, congressmen, senators, uh, mayors, business people, uh, judges, etc. So, if that, if the Italian community were so big and had been like that since the war, so over the last 70 years, how, in your opinion, would New Zealand be today in relation? to how it is now. Thank you. Well, thank you. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. 
All links are in the talk notes.